Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Why have so many conservative Americans fallen victim to disinformation and anti-democratic narratives? What are the historical forces that lead people to ignore facts and to embrace conspiracy theories? And how dangerous are those trends? Pulitzer Prize winning historian John Meacham is producing and starring in a new five episode podcast series that explores those questions in depth. It's called Fate of Fact produced by Shining City Audio and John Meacham and C-13 Original Studio. Mr. Meacham is the author of American Lion, Andrew Jackson in the White House, Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power, and most recently, His Truth is Marching On, John Lewis and the Power of Hope. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to our show now. Hi, John. Hi, thank you so much. You were on our show in October to discuss your first podcast series, It Was Said, which highlighted important speeches from modern American history. Uh, since you have another podcast series currently airing, can we assume that you find the genre rewarding? <laughs> I do. Uh, it's an interesting uh, hybrid in a, in a way, uh, and I don't need to tell you about the spoken word uh, as a as a important and, and resonant genre, but it's somewhere between um, a book and just a conversation, right? So I, I script them, I, I write them out, but it's, it's a kind of communication that has a little bit more in common with writing op-eds uh, than whole books. And so it's, it's a little more uh, free form in that sense. Uh, it's my opinion. Uh, I'm not offering this as the definitive view of anything. Uh, but I do think that a lot of what we're experiencing goes back to the end of the Second World War. And this is a, a chance to talk about it. Well, how can people access these podcasts? Are all five online now? They're wherever you get them. Uh, Apple, uh, anywhere you get podcasts, they're, they're there and they're free. Hmm. Okay. Um, and what led you to this exploration of disinformation and conspiracy? And how did you divide up the topics? Well, I, this has been a th emerging theory of mine for a couple of years that the right wing, and I do focus on the right wing here, I want to say at, at the top that I don't think we should both sides this one. Uh, it's not that there's extremism on both sides. It's not that both sides are complicit in this flight from fact. It could happen that the American left will go crazy and become conspiratorial and fantasist and uh, uh, dissociated from reality. But it but hasn't, that hasn't happened, happened since the end of the Cold War. Well, it hasn't happened this morning. Uh, anything, anything can happen. It could happen this afternoon, but I don't, the, the failure of having two rational actors in the constitutional system is in fact the fault of the right wing in the United States today. And so, uh, I don't think we do ourselves any favors as a democracy to, affect a neutrality. Uh, I think we should all be fair minded, but I think that uh, the idea that there's some kind of reflexive neutral position where you uh, try to ascribe equal uh, blame, responsibility or credit uh, to one side or the other, it uh, doesn't strike me as particularly productive. Um, this podcast actually begins, uh, of all things, 30 years ago when uh, I was covering North Georgia, uh, which is now, by the way, Marjorie Taylor Greene's district, part of it is. Uh, and I was at the Chattanooga Times, my uh, hometown newspaper. Uh, I was, I called myself the Atlanta bureau chief. I was in fact the Atlanta bureau. So therefore the <laughs> election was unanimous. Uh, I ran it out of room 216 of the La Quinta Inn on I-85. Uh, but I was covering North Georgia politics because Chattanooga is right on the border. And I went to a rally and I wish I could remember exactly where it was, but I, I know it was at a civic center in North Georgia. And there was an evangelical activist standing there with, remember, poster board, right, uh, with a homemade sign with a number of indicators 
murder rate, uh, abortion rate, divorce rate, crime rate, all on a longitudinal chronological graph that they were all going up. And if I said that to you, you would think, okay, the place they would start that would most likely be Roe versus Wade in 1973, right? That would kind of be the, the thing. It wasn't. It started in 1962 uh, with the England versus Vitale decision that removed sectarian school prayer from the public schools. And it was a revelatory moment because I realized that for at least for this person and like minded folks, the beginning of the what we think of as the culture war, which has now become a political war and a war on the system of the Constitution itself, begins with the Supreme Court in 1962 with a majority uh, and a court led by Republican appointees. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower appointed Earl Warren. And it made me start thinking, in fact, is part of the disenchantment with the establishment, which was evident that year. That was 1991, 92. And Pat Buchanan, who was kind of a proto-Trump, right, uh, was running very strong in that part of the South. Uh, he actually mentions Ella J. Georgia, uh, which was part of this area uh, in his speech in Houston that year. Um, there was a huge receptivity to this right wing populist message. Of course, Perot would step into that that breach later in the year. And so if these were the folks who were opposing George H.W. Bush, the embodiment of an Eisenhower like establishment, then there was something in the dissociation uh, that was unfolding that was important and is important. You going back even earlier, you've said that the last 80 years of American politics have been shaped by a figurative conversation between Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan. I do. I think that they're on the 20 yard lines to, to move to a football metaphor that uh, FDR and Johnson and now Biden are on one one 20 yard line and Reagan and George W. Bush are on the other 20 yard line. And where does Donald every, Trump fit into that conversation? Well, he's not. He, he that, that's the point is that he's he's not. He's not a uh, sequential. So he's uh, something new. Well, he left the stadium uh, and then tried <laughs> to blow it up uh, to really <laughs> to torture that metaphor, put his name on it and then burned it. Uh, and so I do think that there's an incredibly important uh, shift that's unfolded from the end of Obama to Trump, which was this remarkable sense that the conversation where we debated the relative role of the state in the marketplace and the relative projection of force against commonly agreed upon foes and rivals. And that could be virulent and that could be vociferous. Our debates about that, obviously they were, but everyone until Trump every president governed in a way that would have been recognizable to their predecessor. And Trump was not. He's been, uh, uh, his, his popularity has been kind of uh, described as a cult of, of personality. So you're saying this is something brand new in our, in our history? It's the first time a cult, a personality cult has achieved the highest levels, has, has won the presidency. Mm-hmm. Trump himself, I think, is, is a product of forces that are perennial in American life, nativism, extremism, racism, isolationism, populism. And those forces ebb and flow, uh, given the different circumstances of different political eras. They flowed mightily. Uh, in his presidency, they continue to flow strongly. Uh, you know, the, there's polling that 60, 55 to 60 percent of Republicans believe his lie about the election. Uh, so Republicans are 40 percent of the country or so. It's, so let's say it's half of them. So 25 percent of the country or so mm-hmm. b- believes that the incumbent president of the United States is not a legitimate actor. What sets this apart from earlier eras with John Birch Society and and, uh, uh, other extremists, the Bund, uh, other extremist movements, 
is that it has reached the mainstream of one of the two parties. And so what, say, the John Birch Society, you know, they were at the edge of a meeting handing out literature. Today, they are at the podium running the meeting. But aren't they similar to, wasn't their role similar to what QAnon's role is today? With the exception of the fact that the that the fringe society, the, the, the QAnon is an extreme manifestation of this, but the basic lie is held by a significant part of the mainstream of the party, and that's what's different. You know, had John had Joseph Welsh been active in politics before he founded the John Birch Society in 1958 as an, no, an anti communist group. This- no, he, he made the sugar baby candy. He was a candy manufacturer yeah. uh, in Belmont, Massachusetts, and uh, became an active conservative, uh, but was, let me put it this pillows. way, there was no danger that Robert Welch was going to be elected president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was very little danger that Republicans who ascribed to the John Birch Society philosophy and encouraged it would rise to the pinnacle of power. The closest person was Goldwater, and even Goldwater was far more rational than that. Um, Buckley, Bill Buckley helped read them out of the party. George Bush helped read them out of the party in Harris County. Uh, And it was always seen as something to be fought. My point is that that today they are now in the mainstream. Sorry. Didn't Welsh believe that Truman and Eisenhower were Soviet agents, despite the fact that it's hard to imagine Eisenhower as part of a communist conspiracy to to undermine and take over America? Truman, Eisenhower, and of all people, George Marshall. Hmm. Uh, George Marshall. uh, Because of the Marshall Plan? Yeah. uh, Well, the Army Chief of Staff uh, who defeated totalitarianism around the world uh, was depicted by the McCarthy uh, Birch world as a uh, dedicated agent of the communist conspiracy. And you have to then, so you, you go to Richard Hofstetter, you know, I, I on, on almost will. every one goes to Hofstetter and there was a style of American politics among others, exactly. which we will discuss. Exactly. And so and he published Hofstetter published a cover story in Harper's magazine in October 1964, describing the paranoid style. It is that there are some Americans who believe there are forces beyond their control who are conspiring against them to take away the country they know and love. Sound familiar? Mm. I mean, that is that is the Trump claim. And. The difference, and I'm, I'm not. I'm usually the guy saying there's not a difference. This is X, right? This is a this is a continuation. But I believe that the evidence of the last five years leads me, anyway, to say that there is a distinction in the politics of 2021, which is that the highest reaches of elected officials in a major political party are if not captive to, are actively promulgating the views that would have been seen as extreme in previous generations. My guest is John Meacham on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Was the uh, was Hofstadter's essay, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, in response to Barry Goldwater's victory over the more moderate Nelson Rockefeller for for the Republican presidential nomination, yes, it was the uh, that was the occasion for it. And he uh, went back. He talked about the Illuminati. He talked about uh, different movements uh, from the 1790s forward, uh, arguing that it was a certain style that recurred uh, in a companion essay that was written a little earlier and isn't as widely read, but I highly recommend it to to folks. It's in the same collection. Uh, Most of the collections of the paranoid style now, Uh, Sean Wilentz at Princeton edited a a great version of this a couple of years ago. 
Uh, it's called the rise of the pseudo conservative. Mm. And to, to Hofstetter, the pseudo conservative was this radical political actor that called themselves conservative, but in fact were not acting in the full rationality of the conservative tradition. You know, conservatism, going back to Edmund Burke, uh, had a you know, deep philosophical roots that was fundamentally about skepticism of revolution, that there were unintended far-reaching consequences that unfolded when a society attempted non-organic, inorganic reform, that where you, you try to undo an entire existing order, that creates chaos. And Burke chiefly had in mind the French Revolution, right? That, that the French Revolution, for all of its noble impulses, led to the massacre of a royal family, and then, of course, uh, gave rise to uh, autocracy with, with Napoleon, an unintended consequence, right? And so the basic conservative worldview uh, in the classical European sense was, let's be careful. That's a very different thing than I don't believe the results of that election because I lost. Right. Is the is the current brouhaha over Liz Cheney a matter of deciding, uh, defining what is truly conservative today? Absolutely. That's the way uh, she has framed it, that conservatism to her means a respect for the Constitution and the rule of law. And you win some and you lose some, but you stay within the guardrails of the republic and take your case again. Defend torture. Look, I, uh, yes, look, I'm not here to defend Liz Cheney, uh, but I do think it's important to say, and tell me if you disagree, that the Cheney worldview may be far to the right of the American tradition, but it is within an American tradition. Yeah. And what Trump represents is an end to a tradition where you can have a debate between a Cheney and uh, a Joe Biden uh, on the Iraq war. Um, and you follow the results of that constitutional system. It, to, me, to me, it is a fundamental difference. Um, it's basically preserving the right of Liz Cheney to be wrong about some things and allowing for the possibility that she might be right. And isn't that what the Constitution's for? Getting back to the paranoid style in American politics, I've always thought of paranoia as something uh, personal, feelings of individual persecution. How did Hofstede characterize it? was, and was he using the word paranoid in the psychological sense? He, he pointed out that he was trying, he was not trying to be clinical, but it was the best phrase he could come up with to, mm-hmm. to characterize a worldview where someone looks out on the world and sees enemies and foes and conspiracies that are beyond the discernible, beyond discernible reality, beyond fact. Right. And so everything there aren't mistakes, there aren't coincidences, there aren't uh, honest differences of opinion. There is the machinations and work of an organized conspiracy against your interests. Can we go back a bit? Because uh, it seems to me that uh, much of what you're discussing begins in 1945, in February, when FDR met Churchill and Stalin in Yalta. Uh, and Roosevelt wanted Stalin to agree to enter the war against Japan and to join the newly created United Nations, both of, of which he achieved. But toward the end of the, uh, but because of his strong position, uh, uh, the Soviet forces occupied much of Eastern Europe and were really close to Berlin. Wasn't Stalin able to achieve his main demand, a, a Soviet sphere of political influence in Eastern and, and Central Europe, and uh, which led conservatives to kind of argue that 
Roosevelt had sold us out to the Soviets? Absolutely. That's that you you delineate it well. That's that's the Ur story of the modern <clears throat> excuse me of the modern right wing. That's that's the founding myth. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of it is also the New Deal. Uh, you know the the the. To, in their view, the overreach of government into private enterprise. So there, there's that part of it. That's one tributary, the foreign policy tributary. And, you know, there's also a right wing conspiracy that uh, he knew about Pearl Harbor and lied us into war, you know, of course, which recurs yeah. in the first decade of the 21st century. Right. And so it, there are, again, continuities here. Um, so the Yalta story as you say, is that FDR, who was sick, uh, was taken advantage of by Stalin. Uh, the way the John Birch Society saw it is that Roosevelt had actually been a kind of communist sympathizer and therefore was did not stand up to the Soviets. Uh, as Stalin once said, uh, Anyone who occupies a territory imposes their political system on that territory. It can be no other way. Uh, And FDR, we see Yalta now as coming eight weeks before FDR's death. It's the climactic act of the Roosevelt administration before Warm Springs. But he didn't know he was going to die at Warm Springs. He believed he, and this is very FDR-esque, he believed he would have three years or more to continue negotiating with Stalin. And so to him, Yalta was not an end, but a middle chapter. As complicating, out, was, I'm sorry, finish your thought. As, so it was a, for FDR, Yalta was a step, not the destination. Now complicating and the matter was that Alger, Alger Hiss was, yeah. was uh, attended the Yale conference. He was a State Department official uh, and he, was later found to be secretly spying for the Soviets, which, um, of course, didn't hurt the career of Richard Nixon. The, the Hiss in the Hiss case, as you say, uh, with Whitaker Chambers and uh, the Soviet influence, gave uh, a factual basis, a factual frame uh, for a lot of the concerns. The Soviets were actively spying on the United States. They had penetrated the federal government. Unlike one of, the irony, one of the ironies of the McCarthy era was that Harry Truman launched a pretty severe loyalty program that civil libertarians hated, mm-hmm. but he took the political heat and rooted out a lot of those sympathizers. And then McCarthy came late. It wasn't that McCarthy was wrong about the basic point. It's that he was late and he used it for... Uh, political advantage as opposed to genuine security concerns. Eisenhower was the first Republican president after 20 years of Democrats in the White House. How did conservatives react when he turned out to be very much a centrist? Poorly. Uh, there's a great scene. Uh, I think this is in the Hofstadter essay of, uh, I think it's in the pseudo conservative essay where a supporter of Robert Taft's, uh, says at Chicago in 1952, when Eisenhower takes the nomination away from Taft, who had been an isolationist uh, in the run up to World War II, said, well, we have a socialist, but I guess we'll win, uh, meaning Eisenhower. Uh, Eisenhower said any party that tries to undo something like Social Security will not be long for this world. Uh, He was very much a center right to centrist uh, governor, uh, there were, was major infrastructure undertaken. And I would argue that possibly the most significant thing Eisenhower did on the domestic front was appointing Earl Warren to be the chief justice of the Supreme Court in 1953. And as you and pointed Warren, out, he, he, he was the chief justice when the Supreme Court ruled that public schools cannot have official prayer. Also, Brown versus Board of Education, which desegregated public schools. Now, that uh, must have had an incredible impact on the white South's desire to maintain a segregated segregated order. And I I suspect that we're still feeling the impact of that. Unquestionably. May 17th, 1954 is one of the great days in American history, and it lives on. And that was the day that Warren, who had been the attorney general and the governor of California and a vice presidential candidate uh, with Dewey in 48, 
if Dewey had defeated Truman, Earl Warren would have been the vice president of the United States. Parenthetically, Earl Warren was also the attorney general of California during the internment of Americans of Japanese descent during World War II. And there's some biographical speculation that his eagerness to uh, desegregate public schools was in part a, an expiation of what he saw as, as a wrong he had been part of. Um, there's also the Miranda decision, right, which is a cultural uh, decision. Uh, Warren becomes one of the most important Americans who never held the presidency in terms of affecting the lives of innumerable people. And he became the bete noir of the right wing. There were signs in my native region, impeach Earl Warren uh, after the Brown decision. But think about it. If you're a conservative American whose loyalty is to a certain ideology as opposed to a certain political party, but the political party you see as a vehicle for those views is one that has taken a stance fundamentally at odds with your own views, you're going to begin to distrust that party. And this is my argument in this, in this podcast, is that Eisenhower starts something. Richard Nixon runs in 1968, very much to the right, law and order, Southern strategy. He's uh, trying to peel off as many white Democrats as possible because the party of segregation uh, had become the party of civil rights uh, in 1964, 65. Lyndon Johnson, in one of the great moments of presidential courage, actually uh, surprises his own base uh, and uh, prompted by the courage of innumerable people whose names we know, but many of whose names we don't know, uh, the courageous uh, black men and women of that era and their and some white allies produced a civil rights movement, a black freedom struggle that is enormously important and created a tectonic shift in the, our political system. 90% of black people have voted for Democrats for president ever since. And it began in 1960 when President Ke when Senator Kennedy at the time called Coretta Scott King, who was worried that, again, this sounds awfully familiar. She was pregnant. Uh, her husband had been arrested at Rich's department store in Atlanta and sent to a state penitentiary in Georgia. She didn't think he was going to come out. She worried he was going to die in the hands of the state officials of Georgia. And Kennedy was urged by Harris Wofford to make a call uh, and Sergeant Shriver uh, just to express his concern. And Kennedy did it. Bobby Kennedy was furious because he thought that the bomb throwers, as he called them, were going too far too fast because he was trying to keep together a traditional Democratic coalition of northern liberals and southern segregationists. Uh, but he did it. And uh, Dr. King Sr., Daddy King, who had endorsed Richard Nixon. Let me say that again. Mm. In 1960, before October, uh, Dr. King's father had su was supporting Richard Nixon for president. After that phone call, D Daddy King, as he was known, said, I've got a suitcase full of votes and I'm going to take them and dump them in Mr. Kennedy's lap. And that was in many ways the beginning of this of this important shift. Ken when Nixon actually becomes president in 1968, after running hard to the right, he, too, governs largely from the center wage and price controls, creates the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, thinks about a guaranteed family income. Hello, Andrew Yang. Uh, Changes immigration laws. Goes to China, mm. right? The guy who, who used the his case to rise to power, talking about betrayal and the, and the communist threat, brings the largest communist nation on earth into the family of nations. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Happy days are here again, the skies above are clear again, let us sing. 
a song of cheer again. Happy days are here again. Our guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is John Meacham, whose latest venture is a series, a five-episode podcast series called Fate of Fact, uh, which uh, you can download free at uh, new episodes every Wednesday through May 26. And of course, Mr. Meacham is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of American Lion, Andrew Jackson in the White House, among other books. Uh, I was thinking about William F. Buckley because he uh, was a real conservative. Uh, I would think of him as a straight up conservative who liked to debate people with different views. Was the, wasn't that the longest running TV show at one point, except for Meet the Press, Firing Line? I think it was certainly one of. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, absolutely. I had a, a friend, uh, Ted Marmer at Yale, uh, who uh, was on Firing Line once. And he and Buckley agreed on virtually nothing. And Ted often tells the story about. Marmer made a really good point and Buckley winked at it because he appreciated (laughs) the skill with which the point was made. And we're just not there. Right. And I I don't want to lionize Bill Buckley. I I knew him. We were, we were friendly. Uh, He has an immensely complicated public record. Uh, uh, But as a conservative who valued data who valued coherence of argument uh, he would have a very hard time being part of the conversation today in the Republican party and so we're just not we're just not there and that's not to make you know Buckley and, and his conservatism some kind of golden era I mean, in American history, there's not a once upon a time and there's not going to be a happily ever after. The the point of democracy is that it is a constant struggle, I believe, between our worst instincts and our, and our better angels and our, our instinct to uh, actually see each other as neighbors and not as implacable adversaries. That's, that's the work of democracy. And it's very much the work of human nature, because what is a democracy but the fullest manifestation of who all of us are? I just think that American history tells us we need more people to be part of an ethos of common fact that then leads to vigorous debate, which then leads to elections and the acceptance of those elections until the next election. But this is nothing new. Were you surprised when you were reading Hofstetter about how relevant his essays seem to be about our time? I was surprised only in this, in that what Hofstetter was describing was still a fringe movement. It was a movement that could be isolated, observed, discussed, described, pointed to. The borders around that movement are incredibly porous, and now I would argue almost non-existent. Uh, and that's my point, is that, for instance, to go back to the Cheney stuff, for an example. Um, so I know a lot of people are saying, well, you know, Iraq set, helped set the conditions for the big lie of Trump, etc. For argument's sake, let me propose this. On Election Day 2004, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney were given exit polls early in the day, the first wave of exit polls, suggesting that John Kerry was going to win. Bush flew back from Texas to Washington, believing that he, had be- he was a one-term president. It did not occur to George W. Bush or to his vice president to contest that election If, in fact, those polls had held up, they weren't thinking, let's just say this isn't true. Cut to 2020, and that's exactly what happened. So in 16 years, something 
changed not just of degree, but of kind. And this, to me, this is really important because I, I wrote a book about this a couple of years ago that, uh, and I still think it, it, we don't know yet. But to me, in many ways, Trump's ascendancy in 2015, 2016, 2017 was a difference of degree, not kind in the American experience. These were forces that were among our darkest and most divisive, but they have been with us forever and they will always be with us. So it was a difference of degree that he had actually won the presidency itself, riding, managing, marshalling those forces. I am now less convinced that it's not a difference of kind because of the impact, the discernible impact of those dark forces, including a contempt for self-evident truth that has become the motive energy of one of the two major parties. How much of this is about the difference between interest politics and status politics? I think it's hugely important. So interest politics are the mediation of our economic interests, our geographic differences, our differing views on what to do about X or Y. Status politics, status politics is about who we are. That is, if we don't win a political election, we lose status because of our race or our class or geography again. And Politics has become almost entirely status politics in this era. I think what President Biden's trying to do, by the way, is get it back to interest politics by arguing for a certain policy course that will enhance the interests of people, even if those people oppose those policies. If, in fact, they come to pass, they will benefit from them. And one of the political wagers here for the president, for this administration, is that if he can prove that government actually, the public sector, can actually produce discernibly beneficial results, then perhaps people will have a sense of their political destiny as something that's more rational than elemental. A listener has uh, written in this question, Jeffrey, um, was Eisenhower in favor of the decisions to overthrow Mossadegh in Iran and Arbenz in Guatemala, which led to such long-term problems, or did he just place trust in the Dulles brothers? Oh, I've, I've lost track of my Dulles history. I better not <laughs> pop off on that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I can't speak with any authority on that. Uh-huh. Well... But obviously, our audience is engaged. Okay, so um, did all of the recent presidential candidates—Nixon, Ford, Reagan, Bush, uh, and uh, and Bush—campaign by addressing the concerns of the far far right, and then uh, did they move to the center in the way that Eisenhower did once they were elected? I think that, with the possible exception of President Ford and President Eisenhower, I think Nixon did. I think Reagan did. I think George Herbert Walker Bush self-evidently did. And George W. Bush less so, but he would tell you that there's a direct line between TARP and Trump, that his bailing out of the economy of the Wall, of Wall Street in 2008 created, helped create the conditions for, for the populist revolt of 2020. And I think that Again, one of the reasons, and I, I'm not, I want to make sure the proportion of what we're talking about, obviously, is about the Republican side. It's clear that there are racist factors. There is uh, uh, huge cultural an anxieties that have a lot to do with the fact that Barack Obama was president. Uh, but the question I've been trying to answer is not so much why the fringe is the fringe, because that goes back to Hofstetter. There's always a fringe. But how did the fringe get so much influence to the point where the House Republican Caucus did what it did yesterday? Mm. Uh, and, you know, Gerald Ford came out of that caucus, not that one, because it's so much is so different. 
I remember talking to a guy who's now in the Senate who'd been in the House uh, probably 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago. And I asked him, and he'd been in the House, say, for 12 years. And I said, what's different? And he said, when I came here, so in the late 80s, 90s, you didn't hear that much about the base. And as the, the caucus got ever more right-leaning, right-oriented, and he said, not least because we've stopped worrying about general elections and we only worry about primaries. And he said, everybody, he says, you know, you all in the main, you know, you all in the press, broadly put, don't, you know, think about this as much, but every district has a Rush Limbaugh, you know, that there is a, uh, it's not just the national conservative media, there's a local conservative media and they live in terror of getting on the wrong side of that base. And that goes back a while. Uh, Rush Limbaugh was one of the harshest critics of George H.W. Bush, um, perhaps because uh, Bush believed in what he called sound governance and compromise and the right uh, has sometimes expressed contempt for compromise. And he also believed it was important to take stands against the Ku Klux Klan and the John Birch Society. George George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, about whom I, you know, I'm his biographer. Uh, and so I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I, I can connect almost anything in the world to George H.W. Bush, <laughs> if, if asked. Uh, could no more be nominated today I'm not sure George W. Bush could be. Uh, and that tells you something. George H.W. Bush was essentially an Eisenhower Republican in an era where even being a Reagan Republican wasn't quite enough by 1992. And Limbaugh was a huge part of that. He went national, I think, in 1988. Uh, by 1992, his support for Pat Buchanan uh, was important. Pat Buchanan very nearly upset George H.W. Bush in the 1992 New Hampshire primary. I mean, if you want to go back and look at, again, sort of a little case study of, of how these forces started going out for a run, 1992 is a really important uh, year. It's also, just to connect things coincidentally, Newt Gingrich won his first leadership race in the House Republican Conference in 1989 because the job had been opened up when Dick Cheney went over to become the Secretary of Defense. He was the Republican whip, Cheney was. John Tower's nomination had fallen apart. Bush sends Cheney over to run the Pentagon. That opens up the GOP whip job. Gingrich runs. Gingrich has made his name, you'll remember, with those special order speeches late at night on C-SPAN, where he was speaking to an empty chamber, denouncing Tip O'Neill, denouncing Jim Wright, denouncing the, the Democrats, uh, and really helping turn politics, which has always had a, an enormously theatrical element, but turning it almost entirely into theater. And Gingrich's victory in 1989 uh, set him on a path to being the architect of the 1994 uh, landslide that gave the House of Representatives to the Republicans for the first time in 40 years. From 1954 to 1994, Democrats controlled the House of Representatives. So one of the questions about this Cheney and this uh, leadership election is, is this the beginning of something or the end of something? Is this the end of uh, Republicans being able to tell the truth as they see it and thrive in the party? Is this the beginning of a return, not even a return, is that the beginning of the creation of that kind of thing? Or is it the end? If you're listening to London Lopez at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. And I'm speaking with John Meacham. When Donald Trump said that previous Republican nominees didn't mean what they said, didn't he that just confirm what many people on the right already believed? Yes. I mean, and of course, 
he's set up a dynamic where he can have it both ways, which politicians do. Uh, but would he say that at CPAC? Would he say that in the in his caucus itself? I don't know. Maybe he has. I don't know. But it's one of the things. If you want to talk about why Americans find politicians to be incommensurate with the moment, Kevin McCarthy this week is a great example. Right. Yeah, so he taking two different the, contradictory positions on things. It's also and it. it <clears throat> And this is a, a subtle and, and it may be an unfair point, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. Um, I don't think it's unfair. There's a there's an idea in political science called the politics of propinquity. Have you run across that? No. OK, the politics of propinquity. I love the word propinquity. <laughs> it's a great word. Yeah. It's like a Mary Poppins words. Can you spell it? Uh, I can barely say it, much less spell it. But the politics of propinquity is this idea that physical uh, arrangements matter. That is, if your office is next to someone, you and you end up close to that person ideologically or philosophically, it may have something to do with your propinquity, with your proximity to that person. Uh, it's why, for instance, uh, in businesses and academics and politics, People want to be the last person in the room, right? Biden wanted to be the last person in the room with Obama. Harris wants to be the last person in the room with Biden. It just matters that you are a familiar part of the landscape because you have access. Your voice carries. Uh, it can also cut the other way, right? They may not like you, so you, they don't listen to you. But when you think about propinquity and the basic uh, ethos of politicians. What is a politician's unit of commerce? A politician's unit of commerce is affection, agreement, congeniality. You know, there are some exceptions, but by and large, a politician wants everyone they encounter to like them and like them so much that they vote for them, right? I mean, that that's just the sociological elemental dynamic. It doesn't surprise me in the least that Kevin McCarthy at the White House around the very congenial, uh, very decent president of the United States said something that I doubt he would say to his conservative base because he'd been, in, you know, he's there. Uh, it's that dramatic setting of the seat of our republic, of the executive branch, and in the same way, he doesn't want to be seeming to carry Democratic water when he's with his conference, when he's in when he's in proximity to them. He doesn't want to be seen as a nut and a denier when he's at the White House. That's the human element. The point of statesmanship, the point of human maturity is to find a way to say the same thing in both places. How significant was Kellyanne Conway's reference to alternative facts in that interview she did with Chuck Todd on CNN? It's a soundbite for the era, right? It, 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 it absolutely encapsulated everything we're talking about, that they, they not only... Uh, encountered this phenomena, but mastered it and promulgated it. And so it wasn't an alternative view. That's okay. We have an alternative explanation. We have an alternative plan. That's fine. Alternative facts, not so much. I'm pretty much out of time, but uh, I did want to point out that in addition to fate of fact, you're, you're planning to do a daily podcast that focuses on that particular day in history. When, when is that scheduled to begin? Lord, I hope not for a while, because that's a lot of work. <laughs> we're, we're still trying to figure out how to, how to do that. Uh, I don't know if America's ready for that much dorkiness. 
but uh, but if so, I'll come back and we'll talk about it. And I can't wait. I really love talking with you, John Meacham. Uh, his latest project, Fate of Fact, which is produced by Shining City Audio and John Meacham and C13 Original Studios, five episodes, uh, uh, which you can access uh, wherever you download podcasts free. Uh, it, new ones every Wednesday through May 26th. Thank you so much for being on our show again. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks, Leonard. Great fun. Sorry, I don't know more about Iran. I'll, I'll phone <laughs> up next time. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to comment on any of our shows or just want to say hello, you can write me at my email address, LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I go... I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 right now so that we can continue to bring you this kind of unique in-depth content weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We need your help to to keep this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listeners sponsored on the air. So why not make that call right now in the name of London Lopate at Large so we can keep bringing you the kind of unique long-form interviews you won't hear on any other station. Again, the number to call to make your tax-deductible contribution is 212 209-2950, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And to everyone who's already stepped up to support this program uh, and the station during this terrible pandemic, thank you so much. Uh, I hope you can join us again tomorrow when filmmaker Kim A. Snyder and activist and Parkland survivor Sam Fuentes will discuss their new documentary, Us Kids. You really don't want to miss it. And be sure to stay tuned to this station for an Everything Old is New Again Irving Berlin special with Dave Kenny. It's coming up right after the news. Stay with us.